Hello, this is Graham Brown, Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to discuss vaccine hesitancy related to the vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. We're going to talk about what people are expressing they're concerned about and some of the strategies healthcare providers are using with their colleagues and patients to engage in an informed discussion about getting vaccinated. As usual, I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Marty Lustick and Dr. Betty Rabinowitz. Good morning and hi, everyone. Hello, great to be here. Hey, Graham. We know there have been issues with vaccine supply, distribution of vaccines to states, hospitals, and local health agencies. But even before the vaccination of U.S. residents began at the end of December 2020, there was considerable hesitancy on behalf of the general public and healthcare workers alike as to whether they would take a vaccine when it became available to them. Two studies recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, both from earlier this week, February 9th, talk about this issue from different angles. Each of them shed light on what healthcare workers and people of color indicate form the basis of their hesitancy in, vac- in getting vaccinated. So Marty, maybe you could start us off this morning. What stood out to you about what the study exploring healthcare workers said? Yeah, so when I first looked through this, I was pretty surprised that despite the fact that you've got a well-educated workforce and that I think over 85% of them are in, were in direct patient care, that there was still significant uh, hesitancy about acceptance of uh, the COVID vaccine, where almost half of them said that they would not that, that they would not participate in a trial. In uh, again, almost half felt that it that it wasn't going to be effective. But what the more I thought about it, the fact that this was done in the September October timeframe before we had any of the phase three trial results, and given and you know, some of the issues that were pointed out by those who were surveyed that, you know, their reasons for their hesitancy were the rapidity of the development of the vaccine, the political climate in which the approval process appeared to be taking place, that they had concerns related to those issues. So one of the things I took away from this study is it would be interesting to see how much that same population has changed their opinions uh, since we've gotten some data and since the vaccines have been approved. Betty, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was struck by the fact that uh, most of these individuals, there were 540 participants in the survey, most of them women, age groups that kind of varied. They, they are, most of them were patient-facing. So in spite of the horrors and the severe illness that uh, they were treating in their patients, there was still a very strong sense of suspicion and hesitation around uh, the vaccine. It almost is counterintuitive that uh, folks who were so well aware of the devastating impact of severe COVID uh, would still be reluctant. And, and part of it, I think, has to do with the new technology. I think it's understandable messenger RNA uh, vaccines were, even though uh, were being worked on before the pandemic, were new. The concepts around it are complex. It, it was striking to me. There was also an interesting dichotomy. Many of them 
approved of uh, vaccination for the community as a whole, but when it came to their own well-being or their own decision, were still hesitant. I don't recall if there was a... Um, I think there were 57% uh, of the respondents were, were white, which means the, the rest were not, which could raise a question whether there was overlap with racial prejudice about vaccination and trusting vaccination that was showing up in the survey as well. The, the other thing that I thought of in this regard was these are healthcare workers that have been overwhelmed by the, their work because of the pandemic. And they likely have gotten most of their information by either word of mouth or from what's been in the news, as opposed to having the time to go back and learn more in depth about the development of the vaccines and how this technology has been in development since SARS started and so on. So even though they're healthcare workers and they're educated, they've been pretty overwhelmed by their work at that point and probably didn't have the time or bandwidth to really research. So I think their opinions were likely, for many of them, if not most of them, based more on what they were hearing in the news and less on their ability to actually review literature and understand more deeply what, what, what was going on. Interesting. It may, may indeed be the case. <clears throat> be interested to for each of you to reflect a little bit on the concerns that were expressed here. Each of you were practicing physicians for many years. Marty, as a pediatrician, you did a ton of vaccinations, I'm sure, with the uh, childhood population you were serving. And Betty, internal medicine, you were dealing with everyone's everyday problems, including vaccination. So the, the concerns that were presented in this article from the healthcare workforce did you experience that in your own practice, either from the patients or from other coworkers within the healthcare workforce when it came to vaccination time? So for me, the biggest difference, and it's noted in the articles that we're talking about, is the period of time after the devel initial development of the vaccine that it was tested before it was approved. And for most of the vaccines that I dealt with in my pediatric practice, they had been tested oftentimes for example the the vaccine for um, chickenpox had been used for 20 years in japan before it was even considered for approval in the united states so we had that kind of history to understand the long-term implications for the vaccine and that that made it much easier to reassure patients the truth is there are still things we don't know about both the illness and the vaccine because it hasn't been around long enough to understand what the what the long-term potential side effects are. It's interesting. My sense is, uh, just from my experience, that patients hold very strong opinions about vaccination. There are patients who readily accept and volunteer to get and embrace vaccination and there are patients no matter what information is presented what data is available hold very strong aversion i, I know patients who used to say i'm never going to get a flu i've never uh, had a flu shot i'm never going to get a flu shot and sometimes they would add and i've never had the flu and my response always was the year after you have the flu you will be getting a flu shot, I guarantee you. So 
there is really there are layer, it's an interesting observation how this focuses uh, beliefs about intervention and medicine and trust and the natural approach versus an artificial uh, manipulating the immune system the beliefs people hold about getting sick from vaccinations you know in in vaccines where there is no live virus people still would argue that they got sick from the vaccine so it's a it's an area of our relationship with medicine and science where there is a lot of emotional and uh, belief systems clashing all at once in, in in pediatric it was it was often complicated by uh, the fact that many of the vaccines were required for children to be in school so oftentimes those parents who you know, uh, along the lines of what Betty was just describing who by were just philosophically opposed to vaccines they would be coming in trying to get me to write a medical excuse for their children not to get vaccinated so that they could get out of the the school requirements so it automatically put us in a, a, a somewhat of a conflict type of a relationship so it was very difficult to step away from that issue of them trying to get me to do something that I wasn't going to do and have a objective conversation or what appeared to be an unbiased conversation about what their concerns were. Um, so it made it that particular dynamic, at least for me in pediatrics, made it particularly difficult to navigate these conversations. And I think that uh, the internet has done uh, some good in this regard, but also a lot of harm that I think in, in the last, it's so striking how susceptible uh, the human brain is to information presented in a certain way that isn't necessarily true, but, but is easily believed and supports an emotional flavor or a, a fear or a uh, level of angst that uh, then together just creates a very solid opinion. Obviously, we've seen it in, in broader areas, but around vaccination, there is a lot of misinformation on the internet that people uh, take as gospel, take as, uh, as true or factual, where clearly the science doesn't support those uh, beliefs. What was a bit disconcerting was that a group of uh, highly educated healthcare providers held some of exactly the same beliefs or concerns or, or levels of angst. And because of what Marty uh, you know, pointed out, we don't know what happens five years after a messenger RNA vaccine. So there's, there's a part of a rational brain that has to entertain this uncertainty because it exists. This is the first cohort of humans receiving this type of vaccine ever. And mm -hmm. we know that we have been surprised by new pharmaceutical uh, um, solutions, medications. So. It's a tricky one in this context. It is. Very interesting comments from each of you. Thank you. So I'd like to shift a little bit. The other the other uh, article was a bit of a review of different studies instead of one specific study carried out with a, with a group of uh, specific healthcare workers, also at the end of 2020. And the authors here were looking at the mistrust in vaccines among patients of color and some of the historic uh, precedents in terms of why mistrust is really multifactorial 
isn't restricted to concerns about COVID-19 safety and efficacy alone, but rather is really rooted in a history of unethical medical and public health experimentation involving communities of color, as well as structural inequities that we see playing out today in healthcare disparity. So in regard to this, they then talk about how, you know, 18% of black Americans and 40% of Latinx Americans trust that the COVID vaccine will be effective. So uh, it's a pretty small group that thinks, to your point, Betty, that there's, you know, there's there's information out there, but it's new and they may have a longstanding historic bias against this kind of um, medical technology. Even fewer trust that it's going to be safe. Uh, so the potential impact of this trust is kind of alarming if we think about uh, continuing to promote healthcare disparity between populations that have greater concerns than others. What they then go on to talk about is how clinicians can engage with patients in a discussion aimed at building trust around COVID vaccines. Not really trying to convince them, but rather set the stage for an open conversation as Marty was speaking about a moment ago. Um, Betty, I'd be interested in your thoughts around what resonated you around the approach they advocate. Um, what resonated most was taking an approach that had listening first and truly spending uh, the time and effort to understand the individual specific concerns that patients had about the vaccines in a non-judgmental, open-ended question uh, kind of mode. Tell me, some people have concerns about the vaccines. What are your concerns? And, and truly uh, listening uh, to those. Very important not to offer premature reassurance because you're not sure what the concern is when you offer reassurance and it falls flat or sounds very disingenuous when you're just offering blanket reassurance. And truly asking uh, the patient if they would like to hear your opinion. Would you like me to tell you what I think about the vaccine? In my practice, I frequently told patients what I have done, what I have chosen. Um, as a patient yourself. Instead as a patient of as a myself, correct. Yeah. I, I had similar concerns, but what my decision has been uh, such and uh, so forth. So uh, truly coming to this in an in a open-minded, non-judgmental um, listening mode is, is critical. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything Betty said. Um, I, I don't have a lot to add in terms of what I think from a positive point of view. The, the other issue that, that I encountered with some frequency in my practice was, uh, is, and I sort of alluded to it earlier, the parent that would come in that was belligerently anti-vaccine and their goal appeared to be to get me to tell them that they were right. And so the, so the, the techniques that Betty talked about, about listening first, about asking them if they want to hear your opinion, um, I think those are really important because at the end of the day, you have to be able to diffuse the emotion from the room before you can have any conversation. And if you find that that's not going to happen, then the, then generally the interaction kind of ends there because it, you know you 
as one of two people in a conversation. You don't actually control. You only control what you do, not what the other person does. So I think those techniques are really useful. But for the practitioner, they, it can be very challenging because often you're in very intensely emotional interactions that despite your professional attempts to diffuse them, don't actually go where you're trying to get them. I think uh, one additional thing that's extremely important is to acknowledge uncertainty. So to, to say to patients, you know, I, I completely understand your concern. There are things we don't know or don't understand, or there are uh, some risks that we may not have calculated or accounted for that will show up or are present now and will be accentuated down the road. But to me, it becomes a question of weighing the risks and benefits. And certainly in, in communities of color where the impact of COVID has been so devastating, the argument about co uh, cost or, or risk and benefit seems a very um, useful one because the, we know what the risks have been. They have been devastating. And therefore, the, the bar for certainty is a bit lower. You obviously uh, need to, to, to have safety and, and be able to reassure patients of it. But being honest and transparent that there are things we don't know is so important. Yeah, indeed. You know, it really calls for continued assessment of vaccine uptake and attitudes, especially as we think about these targeted populations that either weren't included in clinical trials, we think about pregnant women or uh, adolescents that weren't included in any of the clinical trials, really understand what's what the impact of these vaccines are on those populations, but also continue to study what is the hesitancy response, how does that evolve over time, and are people becoming more accepting or less accepting, uh, you know, continued study and research in this area. In, in that regard, I do think it's, it's, particularly important in the situation we're in today with the COVID uh, vaccines to be very transparent about the evolving information regarding side effects. That the worst thing that could happen is, is that there's a side effect that, that isn't talked about. And then three months later, there's, you know, there's now then published a, a report of, of people getting that side effect and it was actually known about for a while. So I think that yeah. it, that level of transparency, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but it's absolutely critical, it seems to me, in this situation. So for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to ask each of us a question. Uh, if the vaccine was made available to you today, would you take it? And a secondary question to that, do you have a preference or is there one of the vaccines available that you would not take? Well, you want to go first, Grant? Sure. Um, I would take a vaccine today if it was available to me. I'm anticipating it uh, where I live and with my age. It'll be a couple months yet, but I look forward to the day that I can get vaccinated. Um, I would take the mRNA-based vaccines. I think the only one that I'm perhaps a little hesitant to take, given that what we've seen in the last few weeks is the AstraZeneca one, which has been proven to potentially not be as effective in preventing uh, severe disease in some of the new strains. But I do anticipate that, you know, as we were talking last week on our podcast, we're going to see evolution of these vaccines over the coming years with new formulations that address different variants. So um, I don't think this at the end of the day is a one and done. 
So I was thinking about this issue in the context of that first survey that we were talking about that was done in September and October. And back in that time frame, my thought process was, I don't want to be at the front of the line because I would like to see, you know, six months worth of data on the people who have gotten the vaccine. Um, but by the time the vaccine was approved and the data was published on the phase three trials, and we were in the midst of a huge wave, my uh, attitude actually shifted to the risks of not getting the vaccine so outweigh the theoretical potential risks or unknown risks of getting it that I, I, I will get the vaccine as soon as I can. Um, I do agree with Graham about the AstraZeneca vaccine, but I also don't want to ignore the issue that there's already evolving information about the side effects. And for individuals for whom particular side effects may be a bigger concern than uh, the general population, I think that there, are, there should be some hesitancy about getting one vaccine versus another based on your particular situation and the side effect profile of each vaccine. Betty, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I will get the vaccine uh, as soon as possible. And the overwhelming consideration for me is the, the risk-benefit uh, ratio on this is very clear to me. It is in a range that other decisions uh, would be uh, clearly made uh, to support uh, doing it. So. Vis-a-vis -vis specific vaccines, I agree that I, I'd like a vaccine that has uh, held up to some of the new strains. But I also realize this will not be the last COVID vaccine that we get. So in a certain way, I would like something on board to mitigate or um, attenuate whatever. Uh, and then I'm fully aware that this might end up being a flu shot-like commitment or maybe even more frequent. It might be twice a year uh, commitment. We, we, we'll, we'll find out. I imagine we'll come back to that topic as a, as a result. Well, thank you both for joining today, Dr. Betty Rabinowitz and Dr. Marty Lustig. Thanks also to our listeners. You can just click on the subscribe icon if you want to be reminded of future podcasts that are coming up. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thanks for joining us and have a great day.